You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken, conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Show your work. I'm going to show you my work so hard. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, Jen, what the hell are we doing? What are we doing right now? Okay, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We've had a long, dark season in Roman Britain. It's been so dark. It's been a lot of genocide. (laughs) So much genocide. So much horror and death. Which has been really depressing and... That's how a lot of history is. And so what happened was Jenny came across one small thing in her pics research. And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's this. We got into like a four day. It was weeks. Four day, four week text fight about the central question that this episode is going to center around. We're going to fight over what is the Pictish Beast? What is it? What is it? What is it, Jen? (laughs) We both have such strong opinions on this, and we both just kind of argued about it. We have been talking about this for a really long time, and it's just gotten more and more and more elaborate. Yeah, and at first we were like, maybe it'll be a mini-sode. And I was like, no, this is a full episode. This is the full episode that everyone who has survived 2020 and the first few months of 2021 need. This is going to be some much-needed relief, I hope. (laughs) Just a little bit of levity in the sea of genocide that we've plunged you all into. Yeah, and it's April Fool's, so we encourage you to kick back and enjoy as we dive into some very spurious theories. This is all going to be extremely spurious. Our tinfoil hats are firmly on over our heads. I can't even see out my eyeballs right now. 
Acknowledging that there may be some listeners who did not listen to the episode that we dropped immediately prior to this about the picks, I'm just going to give you a tiny, tiny dollop of background on the picks. Just a just a scotch. So the Picts were a people living in ancient Scotland from around the early 300s to the 900s AD. They first appeared in the historical record as the Roman Empire was starting to collapse, losing its hold in the British Isles. So early on, the Romans and later early Anglo-Saxon and British monks described them as raiders and pirates, pillaging Romano-British communities to the south. Later on, the Picts established their own embattled kingdoms in northernmost Scotland, holding on for 600 years while fighting off challenges from all sides, the Anglo-Saxons, the Dalriata, Vikings, and others. Eventually, they were Christianized and most likely assimilated into other cultures after several disastrous battles wiped out their entire ruling and warrior class. Sorry, we just took a dark turn. But here's the thing, Jenny. Before they left, the Picts carved some spectacular things into standing stones. Right, so we're going to focus on the happy stuff about what they carved into standing stones. We're not focusing on the sad stuff. Yeah, the mysteries of what they carved. That's right. So the Pictish stones are mysterious, untranslated carved stones, like nothing else in the British Isles. There are lots of symbols on these stones that repeat over and over again. And we have no idea what they mean. There are people and animals on the stones, and one of them is the mysterious Pictish beast. The Pictish beast is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in bacon fat. Not bacon fat. Bacon is fat. Wrapped in a rasher of crispy cooked bacon. Bacon pig. Is it a bacon pig? I don't know. We didn't take that tack, but I could see someone making that argument. I'm sorry you didn't take that argument. You fell down once again. <laughs> what? <laughs> once again, Jenny, you failed miserably. Oh, God, I feel like Julius Caesar is trying to go through me. Asshole. All right. <laughs> so the Pictish Beast, it is a mystery. What is it? We don't know. Nobody knows what it is. We don't know what it is. It's not any known animal. But it must have been really important to the Picts because over 40% of animals carved into their stones are in fact the Pictish beast. It's on all the stones, practically, except the really Christian ones. Damn those Christian stones! This was the class three stones. No Pictish <laughs> beast on the class three stones, no. Only Jesus. Look, St. Columba had been there. He, he vanquished it. It's done. <laughs> Look, St. Columba has absolutely no sense of personal space whatsoever. We've established that. He also has no time for sea monsters. Absolutely no time. So what does the Pictish beast look like? So we're going to describe it and we're also going to provide you with ample pictures of it all over our social media and in our show notes. So if you don't know what this is, go look at it and then come back to us because this episode will not make any sense if you don't know what the Pictish beast looks like. And even if you do, it may not make any sense. So yeah, we're talking about a very visual thing in an audio <laughs> mode of, uh, of entertainment. Highly recommend that you look at the picture of the Pictish beast as you listen to this podcast episode and puzzle along with us. So what does it look like? It's got a long, narrow snout that could be said to look like an elephant's trunk or maybe a bottlenose dolphin's nose. It's got some kind of thing blowing back behind it that's attached to its head that I've heard described as like a mane or a blowhole or a spout of water or we don't know, something. It's got front and back feet that kind of point backwards as if it's swimming in water. That is a key detail. And it's got a little curly tail like a bacon pig. 
we've gotten into lots of arguments about what this animal is. Text fights literally going all night. My husband actually turned the sound off and put a do not disturb on my phone because we would not stop fighting. He had to take my phone away from me. <laughs> Jenna's texted me at like four in the morning my time to tell me what she thinks about the Pictish Beast. Which is a reasonable time for me to be awake, but not for you to be awake. It's really like a St. Columba level overstep, Jen. <laughs> As I said, at one point in time, Glenn took the phone, put it on Do Not Disturb, and put it in a drawer and was like, we're done with this. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided that we would take this fight to you. Yes, the listener. Yeah, our listeners. And we'll have a poll and you guys can vote on what you think. And you can see who you agree with more. I mean, obviously it's going to be me because Jenny's argument is ridiculous. Oh, oh. <laughs> Yours is extremely spurious and just completely wrong. But we are going to, both of us, make our case and you, the listener, get to decide who had the stronger case. Okay, so who's going first? I believe Jenny's going to go first because her argument is more factual and mine is more ridiculous. Thank you, Jen, for admitting that mine is more factual. It is. That doesn't mean mine isn't right. We're just going to go ahead and say that it's more right because it's more factual. No, 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 no. Nobody said it was more right. It just is more factual. It's more based in fact. Mine is more based in, as the listener would expect, mythology and cryptozoology. It's fine. Spurious flights of fancy, actually. They know what they're getting with me. It's going to be a mythology, cryptozoology. All right. Well, mine is extremely tenuous history, so I'm just going to go there. <laughs> I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So, I think that the Pictish Beast is an elephant. 
And I know what you're going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. Show your work. I'm going to show you my work so hard. I think it looks like an elephant with my eyeballs when I look at it more than it looks like anything else. That's what I think. I just, that's what I think when I look at it. I think elephant. I think you have elephants on your brain. I think you're wrong. No, no. What I actually think is that it looks like an elephant drawn by someone who had, in fact, never seen an elephant. And I'm going to explain how that could have possibly happened in the history. I realized that, you know, elephants are not native to Scotland. There were no elephants up there indigenously, as far as I know, except... There is some small, very small, very slim, but intriguing chance that somebody up there may have seen an elephant and told everyone about it. And then they they drew pictures of it. Okay, so what you're suggesting is your entire argument is based on an ancient world game of telephone. That's accurate. Yeah. This, guys, this is the most factual of the two arguments. Okay, let me just get to my argument. So the question is, where would the pics have seen an elephant? That's the question we have to ask. And that's the question that I am going to answer. You better, because right now you're circling around a D minus. The case for this is quite spurious. However, there are in fact two documented times when elephants were brought to the British Isles. And the first time, Jen, the first time was in fact Julius Caesar. Oh! I know Julius Caesar needs to have his own podcast. Oh, it's going to be about Julius Caesar. Oh. Let me tell you about that time. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to tell you about it like you've never heard it before. Okay. The first time we have documented evidence of elephants coming to the British Isles that I know of was when Julius Caesar came to the British Isles. And this was on his second trip in 54 BC. Caesar had already been once and basically been driven off, although he likes to describe it as some kind of a victory, but he was running away. Let's be real. The next time he came back with 800 ships specially designed to handle the difficult channel waters, and at least one of those ships contained at least one very irate single mom elephant. That's what we know from the history. Look, we have posited that. We know it's true. It was possibly me in a previous life. She's not a single mom in this life, but in that life, she was an elephant single mom. It explains a lot. (laughs) When we talked about the single mom elephant, we talked about her because... We felt like Julius Caesar stole this mother's baby and this mother and put her into freaking bondage. And that's why she's so angry. Wow, I've just taken a dark turn there again. This is supposed to be the fun episode. Well, I just feel like people are going to be like, why do you keep calling it a single mom elephant? Like, there's no baby. Why are you calling it that? Which has absolutely no basis in fact or history. <laughs> we made it up, you guys. It's our fan fiction. Number one, nobody knows that it was female. In fact, that's extremely unlikely because most war elephants were male. However, they were like part of Jugurtha's untrained. Like they had to like rustle up a bunch of African elephants super quickly and they weren't that well trained. And that's why they lost the battle. And this was Caesar's herd. So I, I think she had not received the, the full on training of a war elephant. What the hell are we saying? I don't know. She's going to need more wine soon. <laughs> <laughs> Julius Caesar pushed his way through hostile territory to wind up on the bank of the River Thames with a very hostile, very angry, name-calling, shit-talking army of chariot warriors waiting for him on the other side, just waiting for him to try crossing. Just try it, Caesar, just try it. The river before him was booby-trapped with sharpened stakes just beneath the surface, not too fun to walk on. It was then that Julius Caesar brought out his one lone single mom war elephant. He brought out this one single extremely irate Undertrained, single mom, war elephant, not her fault she was undertrained. It was a situation. She was real pissed. She was real drunk on human gall. Oh, God, all the time. You'd have to, just to get through the day. Just to get through the day with Julius Caesar and his ego. This is why we drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, so she stood on the banks and glared at the opposite side and frightened the chariot warriors so much that they all ran away. And Julius Caesar's army was left across the river unimpeded, minding the stakes, of course, because elephants have very sensitive feet. So the next time elephants appeared in the British Isles was under the reign of Claudius. And this was about 90 years later, in 43 AD, when Claudius sent his general Plautius to conquer Britain for good. And once again, everything went down on the River Thames, where Plautius deployed his Batavian aquatic German dressage warriors to fight amidst the mud flats and the quicksand, winning a harrowing victory and driving the freedom fighter Caratuchus out of his own territory. That story is definitely in a Patreon episode and not in our main feed. I believe it's in the Druid's Last Stand Anglesey episode, and it's in a lot more depth in the Sick Burn Caratuchus episode, which is on our Patreon. So after that happened, as soon as it was good and safe, Claudius came up to Britain with a company of war elephants, unfurled a mission accomplished banner, posed for pictures, and then went home because he was not that good at the war making, really. All he wanted to do was stand under the banner. Look, he learned something from, like, his great-uncle Augustus. Like, not everyone is meant to be doing the war. So if you can outsource that to people who are good at it and then just rock up and take the credit, it works out better in the long run. Know your strengths and outsource the other shit. That's a leadership strategy. Anyway, so these two instances of war elephants in Roman Britain took place about a century apart and hundreds of miles south of the Picts' traditional territory. And also, the Picts were not known as a people then. Like, they had not been identified by the Romans writing things down in history as the Picts. Doesn't mean that the people who made up the Picts did not exist. They just weren't called that, or maybe they were kind of in different tribal territories and had not unified into the group that became the Picts yet. Exactly. Like, we don't know what they were called at that point in time because they didn't cross paths yet with Roman chroniclers, and their history was written on the Pictish stones, which we can't decipher. So we don't know exactly what they called themselves or how long they had been called that. And because of this, we're assuming a few things that if we had written history, we wouldn't have to. In particular, if we had written history by them and not the colonizers, we really wouldn't have to. So if you want a deeper dive into who the Picts were and their history, we talk about that in the previous episode. So these two instances took place about a century apart and hundreds of miles south of the Picts' traditional territory. So how likely was it that the Picts saw or even heard of elephants from these events? Again, not very. I'm going to be honest here. This is very spurious. But there is a small possibility here. From the earliest invasion of Britain and prior, the ancient Romans were aware of areas as far north as the Orkney Islands, north of, you know, mainland Scotland, And the Orkneys were believed to be very linked to the Picts. Some considered them an eighth Pictish kingdom. The Romans called the Orkney Islands, quote, the Orcades. And the word Orc, by the way, is thought to be a Pictish word that means young pig or young boar. Bet you didn't know that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So ancient writings suggest that people as far north as the Orkneys were aware of what was going on down south as well. It's said that before he left, Claudius received tribute and allegiance from 11 kings, including a king of the Orcades, or a king of the Orkney Islands. And some sources going back as early as the 4th century AD list the Orkneys as a Romano-British province, although nobody believes that the Romans had any kind of serious presence there. Historians in more recent times generally didn't believe this account that Claudius really did get some tribute from a king of the Orkneys. However, evidence from a place called the Brock of Gurnus opens up the door of possibility. 
So the Brock of Gurnus is located in the northern coast of mainland Orkney Island. It's a Brock village, and the Brocks were these really unique hollow-walled towers, some as high as 10 meters high, that were centers of Iron Age Scottish power. These were really ancient Iron Age Scottish communities. It's entirely likely, well, I don't know if it's entirely likely, it's possible that a king in the Orkneys, powerful enough to treat with Claudius all the way down south, could have lived in a Brock community. At the Brock of Gurnus, there have been several pieces of Roman amphoras discovered that predate 60 AD, implying possibly a connection to Rome that predated Agricola's conquest of Britain. This is a little spurious, but it's possible. At Mine Howe, another Iron Age site about 20 miles southeast of the Brock, Roman artifacts have been found, jewelry, glass, pottery, medical implements, and even weapons and armor, some of which date to the first half of the first century AD, possibly right around Claudius's time. It's a little hard to date these things really accurately, but it's possible. So these artifacts have made some historians believe that there may have been a king of the Orkneys who may have had contact with Claudius around the time of his invasion, maybe, and that it's possible, it's feasible, that a king of the Orkneys did indeed ratify some treaty that Claudius signed and maybe got some loot for it. I don't know. Okay, this is just sounding, again, like the most tinfoil theory I have ever heard, and if I'm gonna keep listening to it, I'm gonna need to get more wine. Jen's rolling her eyeballs constantly as I talk, which I don't blame you. This is a tad spurious. I'm not gonna lie. Pretty much. (laughs) Wait till we get to Jen's argument if you want to hear spurious. Look, St. Columbus on my side. But but listen, in order to have this conversation... I don't know that that's a good thing. (laughs) It's documented. In order to have this conversation, (laughs) I had to go inside and open up the emergency Prosecco that we had left over from Christmas because I spent all of Christmas with shingles and couldn't drink anything. (laughs) She was pouring the Prosecco directly on her shingles, which is why it lasted so long. (laughs) I was not. She kept feeding the beast. (laughs) Anyway, so... This is horrifying. What am I saying? We keep taking a dark turn. Anyway, so all I was saying is I had leftover Prosecco, which I decided to break out for this episode. (laughs) Jen had like a, you know, like a little glass case that said, you know, an emergency break glass with like a magnum in there. So, like, I was trying to get through this argument. Yeah, well, it's a stupid argument. I was trying to get through my extremely intelligent graduate-level thesis about what the Pictish Beast is. So, anyway. Excuse me. Oh my God. Now I have the hiccups. Awesome. <laughs> so, like I said, this is, you know, it's a little spurious. I think it's quite founded in, in research and fact, personally. The archaeology is quite robust. However... I can understand how some of you might completely doubt what I am telling you. So still, it implies, this is what I think that it implies, okay? It implies that maybe, just maybe, there's a teensy little chance that people in the Orkneys were aware of what was going on down south. They had connections with the southern tribes of Britain during the time of Claudius. Perhaps some warriors from the Orkneys were even there at these pivotal very early battles because they were allies and they sent some people to help out. Fighting the Romans. That's a thought. It's a thought. It's not true. It's a thought I'm having in my brain right now, which makes it true. And if they were there, if there were people from the Orkneys right there, right then, maybe they saw these elephants and brought back wild tales to the people in their communities. Maybe they did, Jen. Okay, this is so many maybes that I just feel like we might as well just like get our rubber stamp out that says false. Mine is the one that's based in fact. 
Oh, no, 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 no. I have St. Columba on my side. St. Columba is not a credible witness to his own life. I'm sorry. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Are we taking hagiographies as, like, truth now? I mean, you've used them in so, so many other episodes as primary sources. That's true. I have. <laughs> Everything I say on this podcast is completely spurious. That's true. Anyway, so what I'm, what I'm positing is I'm asking you to imagine for a minute this small group of elite Orkney warriors, named warriors, picked men, were sent to help out the Orkney's allies in the South. And when they were there, they saw the ancient Roman elephants. They saw them with their own eyeballs. And they brought back wild tales of these amazing animals to the people in their communities up north. And over time... The story of the elephant could have taken on a mythic status, and its description could have gotten a little bit muddled because this was a game of telephones. So by the time the Picts started carving their legends on the standing stones, which would have been over three or four hundred years after Claudius's invasion at the earliest, the people carving that image would never have seen an elephant themselves. They would have been operating with a picture in their minds that was hundreds of years after the fact, third and fourth and tenth hand, and mythical in nature. Mythical in nature. This sounds like you're making an argument for me. I'm not, Jen, because if you look at the piggish beast with your eyes, just look at it. Just look at it. Does it not look like an elephant? It looks like an elephant. No, it clearly doesn't. You are full of pigdish nonsense. The narrow trunk snout could be a trunk. The curly tail like an elephant. I'm sorry, that looks like an elephant's tail. Even that thing that goes back across his back looks like it could be an elephant blowing water with his trunk. Backwards. The piggish beast's feet are pointing backwards as it seems to propel itself forward, looks like it's swimming in the water, possibly the way that an elephant swims in the water. Think about it. An elephant crossing the Thames in the water. That's what they would have seen. Nope. Nope. This is not that weird because anyone seeing Claudius's elephants or even Caesar's elephants would have seen them crossing the River Thames because that's where they were. So that is my grand theory. And there are other theories that I have seen proposed, and I'm going to talk about them for a minute and explain why I'm not as convinced. So yeah, they're all wrong. I think they're wronger than the elephant, but I think it's an elephant. Are you the only one who thinks it's an elephant, or is there a school of thought who thinks it's the elephant? Other people on Twitter are going to back me, and there's going to be a large school of thought that agrees that it's an elephant after we publish this. Does anyone agree with my theory, or is it just all these other animals that we're not fighting for? St. Columba agrees with your theory, but I don't think that that's like a mark in its favor. I will call down St. Columba. The wrath of St. Columba. He will bust open your door while you're pooping. <laughs> Tell you about God. <laughs> so, Have you heard the good news about the Pictish beast? Oh my God, St. Columba, not now. It's a bad time. <laughs> there is no bad time for St. Columba. <laughs> so I have seen proposed that perhaps the Pictish beast is a dolphin. The bottlenose of its face does look like a dolphin's face a little bit. That's true. It does look more like a dolphin's face than an elephant. It is It is true. That is true. That part of the body. The curly thing that spews out behind it could be a dolphin or whale's blowhole. That's true. However, here's why I think that is complete bullshit. The picks were sailors. They knew what a dolphin looked like. They knew what a whale looked like. They knew what these animals looked like. They did not think that they had legs or curly tails. Or have a body that looked like an elephant's body. They did not. If they wanted to draw a bottlenose dolphin or a dolphin or a whale, they would have just drawn one. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what a penguin looks like. It does not at all look like a penguin. Wrong. It kind of does a little bit. No, it does not. That nose, the tiny little feet at the back going backwards. No, 
No! Have you never seen how a penguin swims? A penguin underwater looks like a bird flying, except it's underwater. But if you look at a penguin not underwater when it's sitting on the water, it kind of looks a little... No, it does not. Another thing I have seen proposed, which I think is utter bullshit, is that maybe the Pictish Beast may be, in fact, a seahorse. And I also feel that this is utter bullshit. I'm sorry. If the Picts wanted to draw a seahorse, they would have drawn a seahorse. They were seafaring maritime people. They would have known what a seahorse looks like. I'm sorry. Fuck it. It's not a seahorse. No, I I mean, I agree. I don't think it's a seahorse because they, they would have known what a seahorse looks like. But I can see why you would think it was a seahorse. I just don't think that it's correct. So I just, frankly, I don't think that the Pictish Beast is supposed to be a realistic depiction of an animal that the Picts had seen, like a dolphin or a seahorse or a whale. Oh, feels like you're making an argument for me. (laughs) That's because you want to see that and you're wrong. I think that the Picts were representing an animal that they had never seen in real life since like generations and generations and generations ago. However, I think that somebody in their background had seen this animal. One ancestor of the pigs, or maybe a few ancestors of the pigs, had seen this animal. And oh, brought wild- oh. I'm just trying please remember to this. It's a listener. real animal, not a mythical animal, but it had taken on mythic status in the Pictish community. And that one or maybe a few of their ancestors had perhaps seen, centuries before when they'd gone down to fight with their compatriots in southern Britain, an elephant. And they'd come home with the most wild tales to tell about the most incredible mythical creature, and nobody ever forgot that story. And that is my extremely factual, not at all spurious, argument about what the Pictish Beast is. I feel that it's an elephant. Julius Caesar, what do you think? Does this sound like your your single mom elephant? Why, yes, of course. It's my Dolph Elephant Lucy. Dolph Elephant? <laughs> It would not surprise me if the pigs fell in love with my dolph elephant Lucy. I did love her so dearly. She had a very funny look to her, like sometimes when she was swimming I sort of fancied she was a bit like a dolphin. Was she half dolphin, half elephant? When a dolphin meets an elephant that it cares very much for and falls (laughs) very deeply in love. (laughs) When a dolphin and an elephant fall in love. I assume that... A woman of your age has been explained about the uh, birds and the bees. What? A woman of my age? I, th- I think we need to back up here. You're far past marriageable age. You're oh. over the age of 12. <laughs> marriageable age. Everything about this conversation is so disturbing. So you're saying that your one single lone single mom war elephant was in fact a dolph elephant? Why is that so surprising? Dolphins and elephants can love each other very much. Julius Caesar, are you pulling my chain? Why, Ms. Williamson, even on the 1st of April, Julius Caesar does not come back from the grave to pull one's chain, let alone besmirch the good name of Lucy. Lucy the Dolph Elephant. Yes, Lucy the Dolph I don't know why you find this so funny. (laughs) There you have it, folks. It was a Dolph Elephant. Straight from Julius Caesar's... Extremely lying mouth. April Fools. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna wrestle this conversation back from the realms of the sublimely ridiculous to just the ridiculous. <laughs> to the completely outlandishly ridiculous. That's where we're gonna take this. thing we've heard from julius caesar about lucy and we've heard from jenny now i get to state my case saint columba's getting involved i think that that 
tells us all we need to know. I'm so excited. I've had a little bit of Prosecco. It's late at night. So I think the Pictish Beast wasn't something real. I think it stemmed from something deep-seated in the mythology of the Picts. And to prove this, I've looked into the mythology of the United Kingdom and Ireland and Scotland. Well, Scotland's part of the United Kingdom. And I came up with a few suggestions for what the Pictish Beast might have been. I am firmly wearing my tinfoil hat, and I'm aware I'm about to go out on so many limbs, I might as well be a Hydra. I'm just going to pour myself a little more right here. And if for some bizarre reason you use this podcast as a resource in your own research, I mean, why? Why? This might be a time for you to look at your life and your choices, because we're going to enter the world of cryptozoology and mythology. So, my theory is that the Pictish Beast is actually a depiction of a water horse. So, a water horse is a kind of mythological creature that is half horse and half fish. And these creatures can be found in the folklore of Scotland, Ireland, England, Germany, Scandinavia, Iceland, and across the ancient Mediterranean. Is this a coincidence? I think not. I think it is. I think it really is. No, I think not. If you just look at it with your eyeballs, it does not look like a horse or a fish. Just let me keep talking. I didn't interrupt you this much in the first paragraph. I beg to differ. (laughs) So different types of water horses can be found in most ancient cultures. Celtic mythology is full of water horses. There are water horses in Wales on the Isle of Man, and in Scotland, a water horse is called a kelpie. These mythological animals were believed to live in rivers and lakes and to drown unsuspecting travelers. Ooh. I believe I have your attention now. You had me at drowning unsuspected travelers. (laughs) (laughs) So it's impossible to say how old stories of water horses are in the British Isles, like if they originate there, or... If they might have come to the British Isles by way of somewhere else, different stories. And I'm, I can't say either way. I mean, I want to believe that they originated there, but there's a lot of cultural exchange, especially amongst Celtic cultures. So the oldest depiction of a water horse is the hippocampus, which dates back to the 6th century BC and was found in a hoard in Lydia in Asia Minor. The hippocampus is the Roman and Greek version of a water horse. It was associated with Neptune or Poseidon, the god of the sea, and was sometimes used as a mode of transport for the god. There aren't a lot of stories about the hippocampus in Greek and Roman mythology, but the image of this creature was minted on coins in the 4th century BC, and the strange-looking beast made its way across the Greco-Roman world and beyond, carried on their money and probably in their lost folklore. And to be clear, a hippocampus, like a Greek or Roman hippocampus, was like half fish, half horse, very straightforward. Yes, half fish, half horse, with its mane flowing in the back and its curly fish tail and its little front feet that went backwards, just so everyone understands where where I'm getting this from. It only had two legs, though, and those were horse legs, and they were the front legs. Yeah, again, we've made a case that potentially this is something that changed in the telephone game of getting this, like, drawn. Yes, we've made that case. That was the case you made, so I don't have to retread that argument. That argument exists already. The pigs had seen a fish, and they had seen a horse, so if they wanted to make a fish horse, they could have done that. They could have, but... They didn't. So a hippocampus was a traditional decoration in Roman baths, and you can see one in the Roman baths at Bath. And this detail is super important. 
We know that when the Romans came to the British Isles, they brought images of a beast that looked surprisingly like the Pictish Beast with them. It didn't look like the Pictish Beast. It did. Could the Pictish Beast depict a uniquely Scottish version of an early water horse that was based on a Roman hippocampus? That's extremely unlikely. It's more likely than an elephant. Julius Caesar says it's a Dolph elephant. I agree with him. It's also April Fool's, and he called it Lucy. He's pulling your chain. I think the Pictish Beast was in Scotland long before the Romans got there. It could have been brought by Phoenician traders as early as the 400s BC. There is scant early evidence of Phoenicians making it to the British Isles, but it's mentioned briefly in the ancient sources. And they did have their own version of a water horse. But this creature could have also been native to the folklore and tradition of the Scots. And there's a reason to think they invented it themselves. Scotland is full of deep, mysterious locks, rivers with treacherous mudflats that could suck you down, and sea channels with strong, dangerous currents. And the Kelpie, which is the Scottish version of the water horse, was strongly associated with dangerous waters. I think the Pictish beast was a warning, a sort of traveler beware, because on this road, we've spotted a dangerous Kelpie. Are we back to drowning strangers? Because I'm into that. We're totally back to drowning strangers. So. What was a Kelpie? Kelpies are mythological creatures that love to hang out near water. They're particularly strongly associated with locks, and they show up in rivers and sometimes the ocean. But they weren't tied to water. In human form, they could travel much further afield. So they could change into humans. They could change into humans. That's part of how they tripped you. So in Scottish mythology, Kelpies can take lots of forms, but one popular form is a beautiful black horse with a dripping wet mane. The kind of horse that you can't help but want to pet and make friends with. But be careful, Jenny, because this horse has ulterior motives. This horse will get you to ride on its back and then gallop into the deep and swiftly moving water, drown you, and leave your entrails on the banks of the river as a warning to all. See, this is the exact kind of toxic relationship that I am extremely likely to fall for. This is why I warn you. Like, here's the thing. I'm very happily married to an accountant because I read my fairy tales. <laughs> right. I'm just like, you know, I'm the reason I'm single is because I'm into bad boys and extremely beautiful, glossy, mean black horses who are going to drown me and leave my trails on the side of the river. So, Jenny, if you're in Scotland one day and you see a beautiful black horse with a dripping wet mane... Oh, I'm petting that horse. I know it's gonna be a it's gonna be a Kelpie Dateline. You need it's to pay <laughs> you need to pay very careful attention, Jenny, okay? So the hooves of a Kelpie are reversed so that they almost look like they're swimming on land. They're backwards, almost exactly like the hooves of the Pictish beast. Coincidence, Jenny? I think not. Oh, see, that's a touche. See, that is the most convincing detail I've gotten from you so far. Because the Pictish Beast's little feetlets are pointed backwards like it is swimming. It's a goddamn Kelpie. It's the warning. It's saying if you see this animal on land and its hooves are reversed like this, that is danger. Danger. That animal wants to get you to ride on its strong back and then it's going to drive you into the sea or the lock or the river and drown you. You know I can't resist that, Jan. I'm going to have to be held back. You're going to be like Odysseus and the Sirens. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be like, I must pet this beautiful animal and feed it carrots. And you're going to be like, no, Jenny, look at its hooves. No. Look at its hooves. You can tell. So the Pictish Beast could resemble a Kelpie in other ways, too. Its body is horse-like, 
not fish-like. It's not half horse, half fish. This means if it is a water horse, it's closer to the native Kelpie than to the hippocampus from ancient Rome. And the ornate line streaming back over its neck from its head could represent a streaming mane. So Kelpies can also take other shapes. They could appear as a horse with snakes in their mane, as white horses who sang songs that lured people towards the water and their deaths, as handsome young men who could cast spells on young women and lure them off the path and take them for a final ride in the dark waters, or as older men with seaweed in their hair. So when a Kelpie takes a human form, it is almost always as a solitary man. With ripped abs or no? That's an important detail. I mean, I'm going ripped abs. I'm going the kind of solitary man where you're just like, oh, I know you're a danger, but I'm going to go over and pet your mane. Pet your very glossy, dripping wet mane. I mean, that's probably an overstep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a St. Columba. This, this is why the Kelpie drowns people. So according to the folklore, you can tell that this solitary man is not quite a man because he keeps his hooved feet. And they're probably pointing backwards. This may or may not be part of the original myth, because most of the stories of the Kelpie come down to us from Christian scribes who started to record these legends in the 6th century AD, and a creature with hooved feet immediately became associated with Satan. The Kelpie, mythological Scottish creatures, existed in folklore long before their stories were written down by Christian scribes. Originally, they existed as a menacing warning creature who wasn't entirely evil. But once the Christians began telling the story, well, the Kelpie became associated with the devil. Because that's what the Christians did to pagan folklore. But the folklore around the Kelpie, when you remove the obvious demonization, makes a lot of sense. Kelpies lured women and children to their deaths. They seduced young women into going out at night, off paths, and into the deep waters. <laughs> it's very clear that someone did not approve of skinny dipping. I always go skinny dipping with large black horses. I mean, if a black horse is like, do you want to go skinny dipping? I mean, I'm obviously terrified. Look, my answer is going to be yes every single time. Every single time. So the mythology around the Kelpie is one of caution. The lakes and rivers are dark and deep, and they hold many secrets that can kill you. The mudflats are rife with quicksand. And I read somewhere, I think it was like in the Kelpie myth of the Orkney Islands, that the Orkney original word for Kelpie, which I haven't written down, meant quicksand. Like as if it was like the creature name came from the quicksand. So I thought that was fascinating. Interesting. So I believe very firmly that the Pictish Beast was a warning to travelers. Beware, there are water monsters. There are things that will lure you off the path. And the Pictish Beast was a form of the monster itself. I mean, I do have some quibbles with this. Number one, I cannot corroborate that every single Pictish Beast image appeared near or around water or quicksand. Yeah, but you didn't have to. I think it was a Kelpie has been spotted in these areas, right? Why would the Kelpie be spotted if there wasn't water within striking distance? Like, why would they need that warning? Well, they might need that warning because, like, the sand is sucky and marshlandy and it could just pull you down. 
I don't think there's been any studies to like map out locations of different Pictish stones with Pictish beasts on them that are within a radius of quicksand or water. Look, this is April Fool's. Nobody has done the research on this because nobody believes this. And also a lot of them have been found not in situ because people moved them around. Exactly. So it could have been. You're wrong. I debunked you. Number two, if you look at, okay, if you look at the Pictish beast with your eyeballs and just look at it, it does not look like a horse at all. They knew what horses look like. We have been told that a Kelpie looks a certain way by the Christian scribes, but what if, what if they got it wrong? And it actually looks exactly like the Pictish Beast, but we don't know because of the game of telephone. Okay, so you're saying that the, um, the original water horse was not in fact supposed to look like a horse. What was it supposed to look like? I have another, maybe even crazier thought. What if the Pictish Beast was a water monster. Because we cannot have this episode without talking about the most famous sea or lake monster that might be the Pictish beast of them all, the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, that's where we're taking this. I'm going to introduce you to my friend Nessie. This is very tinfoil hat right now. (laughs) This is very tinfoil hat. Look, I had to drink all the Prosecco before we got here because even as I was writing this, I was like, oh boy. I realize how ridiculous it is, but I also think it could be true because my man, my man, St. Columba, he says it might be true. Everything <laughs> St. Columba says, Jen listens to. I really do. I grew up Catholic. What do you want me to tell you? This is very disturbing to me. I find St. Columba to be a little horrific. So I'm just like, oh God. I mean, we all do. But in this one instance, what if, what if you saw Nessie? He's her problematic fave. She's like, yeah, I know he's so problematic, but he just pushes all my Catholic buttons. Shut up. <laughs> my grandmother is looking down for me from her eternal resting place and rolling her eyes. Both of them. Just break my door down, St. Columba. Could you stop, please? This is so upsetting for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've offended all of our Catholic listeners in one fell swoop. I'm a lapsed Catholic. I've even offended those. Yeah, me. <laughs> This is extremely disturbing. Okay. So the very first mention of Nessie dates all the way back to the earlier days of the Picts, around 565 AD. St. Columba, the problematic scribe, (laughs) encountered Nessie when he was on his way to visit a Pictish king. That would have been Brood the First. Here's how the event went down according to the life of St. Columba. This is the very first mention of Nessie that we have in written history. We obviously know he's on the Pictish Stones, or she. I like to think Nessie's a she. But you have to take this with a grain of salt, because St. Columba. So, quote, The following account is attributed to the year 565 AD, concerning a certain water beast driven away by the power of the blessed man's prayer. When the blessed man was for a lumber of days in the province of the Picts, he had to cross the river Ness. When he reached its bank, he saw a poor fellow being buried by other inhabitants. And the barrier said that, while swimming not long before, he had been seized and most savagely bitten by a water beast. Some men, going to his rescue in a wooden boat, though too late, had put out hooks and caught hold of his wretched corpse. When the blessed man heard this, he ordered, notwithstanding, that one of his companions should swim out and bring back to him, by sailing, a boat that stood on the opposite bank. It just tickles me that they can't refer to St. Columba without calling him the blessed man. Well, I mean, look, he's got an honorific. He really, he feels like you gotta call him by it. (laughs) Jen's like, no, I just have a giant boner for St. Columba and I can't explain it. 
No. <laughs> I don't want to examine it. I just want to revel in it. Can I get back to my quote now? She just loves him. She loves St. Columba. Quote. <laughs> Hearing this order of the holy and memorable man, another man obeyed without delay, and putting off his clothes, excepting his tunic, because modesty, plunged into the water. But his pants are off, though, so, like, what? Why? I mean, I can't. I wouldn't be able to talk to him because he's not wearing underwear, but let's move on. Balls are fully out, but modesty. Can I please get back to my quote? <laughs> quote. But the monster, whose appetite had earlier been not so much sated as wetted for prey, lurked in the depth of the river, feeling the water above, disturbed by the man swimming. It suddenly swam up to the surface, and with gaping mouth and with great roaring, rushed towards the man swimming in the middle of the stream. While all that were there, barbarians and even brothers, were struck down with extreme terror. The blessed man who was watching raised his holy hand and drew the saving sign of the cross in the empty air. And then, invoking the name of God, he commanded the savage beast and said, You will go no further. You shall not pass. Do not touch the man. Turn back speedily. Then, hearing this command of the saint, the beast, as if pulled back with ropes, fled, terrified, in swift retreat. And yes, he's Gandalf here, and who doesn't love Gandalf? I'm sorry. Catholic Gandalf. There's only one Gandalf, and it wasn't St. Columba. But if you're picturing St. Columba right now as Ian McKellen as Gandalf, then you're in my brain. <laughs> Just remember, if you're pooping, he's going to bust in there to tell you about Jesus and himself. Mostly about himself, though. So finally, even though we've reached the realm of cryptozoology here, there is reason to think that stories of water horses could have had their roots in the remains of a real animal who once swam in these waters. The Mosasaurs. We're sullying the memory of the Mosasaurs by bringing them into this extremely spurious conversation. Really? We're not sullying anything. The Mosasaurs belong here. The Mosasaurs own this land. You know, I feel like the Mosasaur contingent of our listeners is now extremely offended. Look, this is not the first time I brought the Mosasaurs in. I brought them in during the Germanicus series because Tiberius owned a Mosasaur tooth. It's not the first time we've been canceled by the Mosasaur contingent of our listeners. <laughs> We're sorry. We love you, Mosasaurs. So archaeology tells us that there were ancient Mosasaurs, or giant aquatic reptiles, whose fossils have been found across Europe. These ancient animals lived about 75 million years ago, and they could reach up to 50 feet long. And they look a little bit like they could be like a Loch Ness monster skeleton with massive alligator heads and enormous teeth and kind of like the Pictish beast. I have questions about this, though. Like if you look at a Mosasaur fossil, does it look like the Pictish beast? I mean, it could depending on who puts it together. I don't think it does look like the Pictish beast at all, except maybe its head. But it would have had a lot more teeth if that was what they were going for. You're assuming a complete picture, which we don't know that they would have had. So it's quite likely that ancient cultures came across these fossils, especially while mining. Some Celtic cultures, especially ancient Hallstatt and Latin cultures, were heavily focused on mining. And we also know that these, like, Moses or artifacts were like traded throughout the ancient world because we know the emperor Tiberius had one. It was like supposed to be the tooth of a sea serpent, which later on we realize is the tooth of a Mosasaur that was probably dug up somewhere. I've been to Maastricht in the Netherlands 
where there are mines, like I think granite or marble mines, like massive mines that it's like you walk through the tunnels of these mines and each tunnel is is like you could fit like 16 cathedrals in there. And that's where they got all the marble for all the cathedrals throughout Europe in the Middle Ages from like the 1300s onward or something. I'm probably screwing up those dates. But there have been Mosasaur skeletons found in those mines. So if we're talking Celtic miners all the way back earlier than that even... I wouldn't be surprised if they occasionally came across skeletons. And I'm not saying that there were Mosasaur skeletons found in Scotland because I'm not aware of any. I could be wrong on that. But there were definitely Mosasaur skeletons found like that existed in the ancient world. And maybe some people found them in their mining and maybe the news traveled, in which case it could have been a game of telephone when it got to the pics, too. That's what I'm saying. What would ancient people have made of these giant skeletons? Could they have believed that they might still live in the depths of oceans and lakes, particularly dangerous oceans and lakes? Could they have spun stories that explained the mysterious deaths of people in their own communities? People who went swimming where they shouldn't or who walked too near to the mudflats late at night using these mysterious sea monsters. Could these skeletons be the origins of the mythology of the water horse of the Kelpie? So maybe the picture piece represents an early image of a water horse, the precursor to a Kelpie, or maybe the Loch Ness Monster herself. Maybe the story of the Kelpie comes from colonizing Romans. Maybe it was invented by the Scots to explain mysterious aquatic deaths and warn people away from dangerous currents. And maybe... Just maybe, stories of the water horse find their truth in a much older animal from a far more ancient ocean indeed. I'm sorry, Jenny, but this is definitive proof that the Pictish beast was a Kelpie and the Loch Ness Monster and also probably a Mosasaur, the most terrifying water beast of them all. I mean, that is a bold claim. There are some things about your argument that are not as completely out there as I thought. However, I am going to go with the elephant on this, and I would like to hear Julius Caesar's opinion. Oh, Ms. Williamson, everyone knows. It's the Dolph Elephant Lucy. Anything else is just ridiculous bunk from a crazy ginger. Fuck you, Julius Caesar! <laughs> okay, so we know what Julius Caesar thinks. He thinks I'm right. Jenny is not right. Julius Caesar and Jenny are once again shamelessly flirting. And also Julius Caesar is completely, completely teasing her because it's April Fool's. Everyone knows my argument is the most sound and makes the most sense. So we leave it to you, the listener. Which argument do you find less spurious? Which argument do you find more ridiculous? Do I win? Does Jen win? Do you think we're both full of actual shit? What is your problematic fave? My problematic fave is definitely the horse that's going to drown me. Jen's problematic fave is Catholic Gandalf. Okay, so that's it now. We're done. (laughs) So that's it for this week. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient History Fan on Twitter or at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram or Facebook. And check out our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you could actually pay us money to get even more nonsense. So for just $2 a month, you'll help us keep the lights on. You'll help keep supporting our ability to bring you great content or spurious content. I mean, you know, one or the other. But you'll also get extra brand new episodes only for Patreon subscribers and conversations where we get extremely drunk and silly with other smart podcasters and talk about things like Greek mythology and movies. And we have Kukalan and Julia Caesar on. And it's just a wild time that I am not sure I could ever express in words.
If you want to hear more Julius Caesar and Kukulin, like they show up in our ten dollar and up episodes a lot. Like we just have a lot of kind of very freewheeling, casual episodes that feature them. It's really fun. We have some patrons to thank. Yeah, blanket statement. We're probably going to mispronounce some names. We're sorry. Abigail Van Kirk, Buttoneer, Jake Swinson, Isha K. Wheeland, Trisha Kramer, Caitlin Willie, Katie Beaumont, Brian Egan, Kira Freeman. Charlotte McHale, Britt Hobson, Rita Brown, Ted Humphrey, Ashley, just Ashley, Desay, Claire Bear, Vicki Brim, Only Me Three, Lucy Hansen, Jessica Gray, Katrina Farley, Jeanette, Anastasia Shavina, Catherine Ward, Catherine Waterfield. And there's one person who left their name blank, and we thank you, blank person. We thank you. We thank you. You know who you are. We appreciate your support. We appreciate all of your support. We're really, really appreciative of all of our new patrons. Times are tough, and we know that it's really difficult right now for everyone, including us. And if you're able to give and support us, please do. It really means the world to us. We both had major life-changing circumstances, and we want to keep the podcast going and keep it the forefront most important thing for us. And without your support, we can't do that. Yeah, I mean, we've really worked hard. We've really worked hard to um, keep the podcast going on a regular schedule and keep the quality up. We really feel like it's important to us to be there for our listeners in difficult times, just to keep you guys company, to keep your mind off of harder things. That's what we want to do. That's what we're here for. If you can support us, we really, really appreciate it. If you can't support us, you know, we get it. We've definitely had some financial hard times as well. We totally understand. Just tell somebody you know about us and give us a recommend or maybe retweet something that we put out there or, you know, help spread the word. We appreciate that too. Thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks. 